Well, as you already know, uh, last Sunday, the worst church shooting in American history happened about 40 miles away. There were 26 people who were killed, and there were another 20 who were wounded in First Baptist Church of Sutherland Springs, Texas. And as Michael mentioned, I was there about an hour after it happened, and I've, I've been there uh, pretty much throughout this week um, as I've led the chaplaincy efforts for the first responders, the pastors of that community, uh, and the people of Wilson County. And I want to thank you as Wayside Chapel for sharing me with them. Uh, my ministry is your ministry, and your prayers have been uh, felt not only by those people, they've been felt by me as well as I've ministered. And I know many of you have been asking me, what can you do to help with the needs there? We always want to help in a, in a time like this. And one of the ways many people want to help is by giving financially. And if, if you're wanting to do that, I, I want to caution you right now against giving. And there's a, a number of reasons for that. One is I've watched the district attorney there dealing pretty much this whole week with all of the scams that are out there. You'll see all these GoFundMes and different things where people say they're raising money for this or that. And even of those that are legitimate, I want you to know that the, the resources have poured into that community in excess of a uh, million dollars. And all of the needs are currently met. There, there are no needs that are unmet. You've maybe seen where people are wanting to rebuild the church and they're raising money for that. Uh, the church will be rebuilt, but not by the GoFundMe things that you're seeing. The uh, Baptist denomination has already pledged to rebuild the church. Uh, the existing church is going to be a temporary memorial. They've painted the entire interior white. They're putting 26 benches or individual chairs with red crosses in the names of the individuals who were killed in the church. And after that, the church will be rebuilt, but again, not through the online efforts that you're seeing. That's all been secured and taken care of. Uh, I've had emails this week from some of you wondering, is it safe to come to church? Well, obviously, y'all have come to church. But I've been uh, talking with individuals who have been worried about that. And you'll remember if you were here last week in my sermon, I used the illustration of when I had been a police officer in Dallas. And, and I said that we have the truth in the scripture that our days are numbered. God knows them. And I also mentioned that doesn't mean that we presume upon God or we don't take necessary precautions. And I want you to know at Wayside Chapel, we are wholly dependent upon the Lord and his hand of protection. But we also take reasonable and prudent steps for security. Some that you see, you know we have uniformed police officers here on our property. Uh, there are a lot of other things you don't see and I won't tell you because it's not prudent to reveal all of your security. So whether you're at Stone Oak, you know you have uniformed officers there and we have uniformed police here and we have other measures that are in place uh, for our safety. Now, I considered uh, changing directions this morning to deal with what has happened out there, but if you were here just a few weeks ago after the tragic shooting in Las Vegas, you'll remember that uh, we pulled out of our series in Luke and we went to the book of Habakkuk and we looked at this question of why. Why do things like this happen? And so rather than re-preaching a lot of what I talked about in that sermon, if you missed that message, you can go online. That sermon's available on our website. And what I want to do today is have us turn in the book of James, to James chapter 1. 
Uh, Last week, as we were looking at the temptation of Jesus in Luke chapter 4, I said we were going to come back this week and we were going to deal in practical ways with how do we deal with temptation in our own life. And as we look at James chapter 1, we're going to see that James has a lot to say about this, not only in terms of how we deal with it individually, but even what happened in Sutherland Springs, Texas. So, In James chapter 1, we're going to talk, I've I've changed my message direction a little to to deal with the tragedy, but as we look at handling temptation, I think you'll see here in James chapter 1 that he has something to say about this as well. In James 1, 13 through 15, we're told, let no one say when he is tempted, if I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now, if you go back and look at the first part of James chapter 1, what you'll find is what James has been saying in the verses preceding this, he's been talking about God's process of maturing and refining a believer. And this happens through the trials that we face. When you see this word in James uh, 1-2, it's uh, the Greek word perismos, and it it literally means trials. So as James is talking about these trials and things that a believer faces, he uses this same Greek word in the passage we just read. It can also be translated as temptations. So it's a word that speaks of trial, and it's a word that speaks of temptation. And uh, here in James 1.12, as he says it, he, he talks about temptation. And the reason this word is interchangeable is whenever we face a trial, there's a temptation that comes with it. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but as you face a, a trial, there is a temptation that goes with it. One of the temptations we face is to, to escape it, to get out from under it. Now, as we're going to talk about today, when we face a temptation to sin, the Bible says, get out of there. So we talked about last week, flee immorality, flee temptation. But when you're going through a trial, that's a refining process. It's where God is at work in us. He's strengthening us. He's burning away uh, the dross, as you would, in purifying metal. He's strengthening uh, us. And so there are times when we're under a, a trial that we're not to flee. We're to, we're to stand up under it. We're to allow God to be doing his work. And when we flee it, We short-cycle God's purpose or process of maturing and building up our spiritual muscles. Now, another way the the temptation comes is that we can lose sight of even God himself in the midst of a trial. With a tragedy like what happened in Sutherland Springs, Texas, there is a, a propensity among people to question the goodness of God, to question the power of God, as we talked about in that previous sermon on why I talked about we question if God was good, why did this happen? Uh, James just told us God himself doesn't tempt anyone. God does not cause evil. He allows it at times. And for purposes we as finite individuals don't always understand with an infinite God. And so God doesn't cause these bad things. He allows them at times. But we can question the goodness of God and say if God is good then he wouldn't have allowed it to happen, so therefore it means he must not be powerful enough to stop evil from happening. That's not the case. And so one of the the temptations with a trial is we can lose sight of of who God is. As I was there in in that community on Sunday, 
Sunday afternoon as I gathered in the community center with the immediate family members of those who had been killed and wounded in the church. And there were about 100, 120 immediate family members in this community center. And, and as you can imagine, there was, there was grief and there was wailing and there was all kinds of things that were happening. And I had an opportunity to speak to this gathered group of families. And I didn't come in and I didn't try to address the question of why. Why did God let this happen? Why were these things going on? Instead, I pointed the people to who. Who God is. And I reminded them that of those who were lost, those who had died, where they had been, they were in church. And I said, your loved ones were worshiping the Lord. They were singing songs of praise. They were hearing from his word. They were praying to him. And I said, in the moment that their eyes closed here on earth, they opened their eyes and they saw their Savior face to face. And I talked about 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And there were other things that I shared with them, and, 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 and I ended by praying for them. And when I, when I finished praying, there was a collective amen, there were some hallelujahs, there was the entire atmosphere of that room changed instantaneously. And that's what your prayers, sometimes you wonder, are my prayers even doing anything? When you're praying for God's peace that passes all understanding to surround those people, your prayers were a part of it. That prayer, the hearing of, of God's truth at that moment changed the mindset. It reoriented everybody as to what was happening. That's what God does. That's who God is. That's what the power of his word does. And, and a short time later, uh, Governor Abbott, came in to speak with the families. And as he came in, he expected the scene to be as it was when I first arrived. And, and he asked me, he called me over, and we talked for seven or eight minutes. And he said, Roger, why is there such a peace in this room? And I explained to him what I had shared. I explained what had been prayed and what others were praying. And that's what God does in the midst of these trials. That's what his presence is when he tells us, I will never leave you or forsake you when he's with us. The Holy Spirit, the, the Greek word is paraclete. It literally means the comforter. And God is present with us in the midst of these trials. And some of you this morning are facing trials. It may not be what the families are facing 40 miles away, but you're, you're facing financial difficulty possibly. And you're in the midst of, of wondering where is God? Why isn't he taking care of me? As we talked about last week, we question his care, his provision. If our needs are going unmet, as we talked about the temptation to say, I have to do it myself. I can't trust God. When a loved one is sick or dies, we question God's power or his care. The suffering of the righteous and the poor when the wicked seem to prosper can cause us to question God's justice and maybe even his existence. Warren Wiersbe once said, if we are not careful, the testings on the outside may become temptations on the inside. When our circumstances are difficult, we may find ourselves complaining against God, questioning his love, and resisting his will. And in those times, we as Christians, when we come in contact with these, the parismas, the trials as well as the temptations, we need to turn to what we understand. Just as a wrong reaction to testing will cause us to question God, a wrong reaction to temptation can cause us to fall into sin. 
It can hinder our spiritual growth. It can hinder our maturity. Whatever the temptation is we're talking about, it tells us here in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. You know, we live in a world where people like to blame others, right? It's always somebody else's fault. We find ways to justify ourselves. We say, it's not my fault. It was the family of origin I grew up in. It, it was the circumstances that I was in or where I come from. That's just the way it's done. And, and one of the big ones is we say, well, God made me this way. And so we blame God for the, the, the desires and, and we try to excuse our, the bad things we do. But blaming God isn't new. Do you realize that? It goes all the way back to the very beginning, to the first temptation. Do you remember when Adam and Eve were in the garden and the first temptation came that led to sin? In Genesis chapter 3, when they disobeyed and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, they felt shame. They were naked and they hid from God. And when God asked them why they were hiding, the man said in Genesis 3.12, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. You see, rather than manning up and saying, I disobeyed God, I blew it. I did what you told me not to do. Adam immediately pointed to his wife, and he said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave it to me. It's your fault, God. If you hadn't put her here, this never would have happened, right? You remember Eve? She also pointed the finger, didn't she? She pointed and said, well, God, it's the serpent's fault. The devil made me do it. And what James tells us is when we sin, we need to point the finger exactly where it belongs, right here, on ourselves. Yes, there are external factors. There are family of origin issues, tough breaks, bad people, all kinds of things outside of our control. But ultimately, we're in control of the choices we make and how we respond to things when they come our way. And when these things come our way, the Bible tells us, while God is not the one tempting us, he does understand what we face. You remember last week, we spent a lot of time with Hebrews 4.15. There it says, for we do not have a high priest, this is speaking of Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Now, as you read that, we're tempted in all things as we are, Yet without sin, what do we do with James 1.13 where it says God cannot be tempted by evil? Well, if you missed last week, go back and listen to it because we walked through, could Jesus truly be tempted? And, and, and the answer is that this goes back to what we talked about where he is fully God and fully man. The fleshly side of him went through real and legitimate temptations. The, the side of him that is God God cannot be tempted by evil. This, this is clear. And so this is where uh, the answer comes. Maybe a, a way to understand it is to think of a massive boulder. Have you ever been to a seashore and seen one of these, these massive uh, cliff-like rocks? And the waves are crashing against this, this huge boulder. And what it's doing is it's making the boulder wet, but it's not moving that rock, is it? Now, some of you are saying, well, Roger, given enough time and erosion and on and on, well, it's an illustration. <laughs> and with God, we know God does not change. God does not erode. He will never 
give in to sin. His character will not be changed. And when we look at James 1.13, and it says, let no one say that he is being tempted by God, what we find here is the Greek preposition, apo, is used. Now, uh, just bear with me for a Greek grammar lesson for a moment, because when apo is there, it refers to the source of origin. Okay, so what we're being told here very clearly is God is not the one doing the tempting. Uh, In contrast, if you look back at Luke chapter 4, verse 2, where we were at last week, the preposition that is used there is hupo, and hupo designates the direct agent. Now, who was it that tempted Jesus? Do you remember? He was led away into the wilderness, and it was Satan who came to tempt him. So when we're told that God himself does not tempt anyone, that is true. He is not the source or origin of temptation. He's not the one doing the tempting. Now, while, while God doesn't tempt us, he does prove his servants in order to strengthen their faith. Uh, he, he sometimes, he never seeks to induce sin to destroy us. He allowed Job to go through all the trials and temptations that he did when he suffered. He allowed Satan to do things to him. It wasn't to destroy Job. It was to prove to him. Remember, God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him. And Satan said, oh, will you let me at him and and he'll turn on you? And he didn't. Satan wants to destroy us while God wants to strengthen us. In Luke chapter 22, verses uh, 31 through 32, Jesus told the apostle Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you... When once you have turned, um, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You see, when it comes to prayer, we read in the Bible, the Lord's Prayer says that, that we pray what? What about temptation? Lead us not into temptation. So are we having to say, oh, well, God, I know your word says you don't tempt anyone, but I need to make sure you don't tempt me. Is that what we're praying? No, that's not not what is there. When we pray, lead us not into temptation, we're not asking God not to tempt us. Rather, we're asking God not to allow us to come under the sway of temptation that will overpower us and lead us to sin. And, And the answer to that is God says, I will not allow that to happen to you. If you've ever read 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it tells us no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide the way of escape so that you can stand up under it. God says, I will not bring more than you can handle. Now, not us individually alone. Remember, we have the Holy Spirit living within us. And so what God promises us is when we pray, God, don't let me be tempted. We're saying, God, don't let it be too much that I can't bear. And what God says is we always have an escape clause. You see those signs that say exit? He says there's always an emergency exit. There's always a way of escape. There's always a place that you can go. If you feel you're at that breaking point, he says flee temptation. Run from it. There was a mother who told her son, her, her son one day, not her son, her son, told her son one day, uh, you know I don't want you to go swimming. So you need to go from here to there and you need to do what you're supposed to do. And uh, the little boy came home and his hair was wet and his bathing suit was wet too. And his mother said, I thought I told you 
not to go swimming. And he said, well, Mom, I couldn't help it. He said, as I walked by, the water just looked too good. And she she said, well, if it just happened, why is your swimsuit wet? And he replied, well, I wore it just in case I was tempted. (laughs) Is that how we operate? Do we pre-plan to sin? Do we prepare for it just in case? And then we say to God, well, I, I just don't know how it happened. Oscar Wilde once said, I can resist anything except for temptation. (laughs) See, the Bible doesn't tell us to stand toe-to-toe with temptation. He doesn't tell us to attack our enemy. What he tells us is, yeah, in Ephesians 6, where we're given the full armor of God, he tells us to stand firm, but that that means to, to maintain the ground that we've been given, not to try to take over. Uh, The world belongs to our enemy right now. There was a a mother, another mother, who walked into the kitchen one day, and she caught her young daughter up on a chair with a cookie in her mouth. And uh, she she said to her, what are you doing? And she said, well, it's not my fault. I just climbed up here to smell them, and and my tooth got caught. (laughs) Again, how many times do we... We tell God, lead us, not into, lead us not into temptation, but how many times are we going there ourselves? And we dance around it, and we pre-plan, and we play with it, and then we wonder, why did we fall into it? In James 1.14, it tells us, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. The Greek word that is translated as carried or drawn away here was originally used literally of baiting of a trap setting a snare and putting bait there to entice an animal to come to it. It was, it was used of baiting a hook before you dropped it into the water. And when it comes to Satan, again, we've talked in the past about who our enemy is. He, he is described throughout the scriptures as a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour. He's, he's, he's a master of deception. He's not just this little red-suited guy with pointy horns and a pitchfork like you see on the Underwood uh, deviled ham can. He's described in the Bible as the covering cherub, an angel of light. He's a beautiful, uh, the highest created being in terms of the angelic realm before he fell. And, and he's a master. So when you think of him as a fisherman or a hunter trying to get you, he's not some little barefoot boy with a cane pole and a, and a little can of worms. He's, he's a tournament bass pro with all the tools of the trade. He has a, he has a boat with a GPS finder and, 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 and all the tools on it. And he knows us. He knows our propensities. He knows where we've sinned. He's marked those spots in the past. And he goes back and, and he fishes those waters for us. And for those of you who are running those secret paths of sin where you say, well, I can get on the internet and, you know, play games around here and, you know, look at this site and I'm I'm okay. He knows where you've been. He knows what you're doing. And, and, And we need to understand that while he has all of these lures, what causes us to actually sin is not these external things. It's that internal desire within us. Have you ever seen what happens, um, um, when you, you take a um, Diet Coke and you drop a Mentos into it? Have any of you ever seen those videos? How the thing just and explodes? Well, you can think in terms of our sin nature being within us like a, a thing of Diet Coke. And if I'm stepping on anybody's favorite drink here, I'm sorry. 
And, and these, these lures are like little Mentos that he's throwing in there. And if you've ever done it, you know it's fun for a moment, but then there's this massive mess you have to clean up, right? And it's kind of like that with sin. And so a moment ago, I told you this Greek preposition, hupo, speaks of that direct agent. And James says our internal desires uh, cause this sin. And when we keep them apart, things are fine. And this is why we're to resist temptation and flee from it. The, the word translated as lust here in verse 14, the literal meaning is a strong desire. We often think in terms of lust being sexual sin, and that's one of them. But it's all kinds of things. Do you remember what we looked at last time in 1 John 2? It said the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And we looked at the three categories of things that tempt us there in Luke chapter 4. And in 1 John 2.15, I just quoted you, verse 16, 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. God has given us these desires. The desires themselves are not bad. He's created us to be hungry, to be thirsty. That's how your body tells you you need to drink, you need to eat. These are natural desires God has given us. And sin comes when we fulfill them in the wrong way. Uh, they're good in and of themselves. Food can lead to gluttony. Um, thirst can become drunkenness. Sleep can turn to slothfulness. And this is what Satan does. He takes the things God has created that are good, and he twists them, and he corrupts them, and he turns them into evil. So the desires that we have as people are not in and of themselves bad. It's when the, the Mentos and Diet Coke get together that we have a problem. Now, you can take what we just read in 1 John uh, chapter 2 and compare it to how Satan tempted Eve and what he tried to do with Jesus. So let's look at Genesis 3, 6 for a moment. In Genesis 3, 6, it says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's the lust of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, there's the pride of life. Again, these sins of 1 John chapter 2. It says, She took from its fruit, and she ate, and she gave also to her husband with him, and he ate. So remember, Satan's goal is to entice us. Just like a fisherman drops that hook in, in the water and, you know, you jig it or you work the worm or you do the things that you need to do. Sometimes if you're red fishing in the bay, you let that cut bait sit on the bottom for a long time and, and you know, it'll come in and, and, and take the bait. Satan's been fishing the waters of the world since the days of Adam and Eve. And if you think you can stand against him, you're wrong, which is why God tells us to flee now, here's one of the advantages we have. We know how our enemy works. Do you know that? We know what he does and how he works. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, For we are not ignorant of his schemes. The Greek word there for schemes is methodia. You ever heard our English word methods? We know exactly how he works. So we don't have to fall into his, his, uh, his, sin, his, his traps for sin. Um, We've already talked about how we're to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That's found there in Ephesians 6, 11. So this word denotes that which is cunning. Satan, as I told you, has a number of names and titles. One is the deceiver. One is the father of lies. He's, 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 he's good at what he does. And what he says is, well, here's, here's a nice tempting morsel. But he doesn't tell us there's a hook in it, right? 
So kind of like this little fish, we swim around, we look at it, and we say, well, let's, I'm just going to nibble around the bait for a while, and oh, that, that was good, that was no problem. And then there comes a point where we bite into it, and we suddenly find there's a hook. And just as a fish gets on your line, it gets hooked, and suddenly you set the hook, and, and that fish that was just happy as could be suddenly finds itself out of the water, and it becomes your meal or if it's a big enough, nice enough fish and your spouse will let you do it, it gets mounted on the wall, right? And that's what Satan does with us. It's what he did when he tempted Eve. If, if you look at how he worked, here in Genesis two sixteen through 17, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but... From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. So there's God's command to us. And what Satan does is he comes along in Genesis 3, 1, and it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Do you see what he's doing here? Do you see how he takes the word of God and he subtly twists it? And did God say you couldn't eat from any tree? What did he say? You can eat from any tree of the garden freely, but from one, right? And did you notice how Satan also left out the consequence, you shall surely die? You see what he does? He, he takes what God said and he subtly twists it. Last week we looked at how he came to Jesus and he quoted out of the Psalms, but he left out in God's ways. He left out just four simple words and he does the same thing with us. He comes in and I told you we already know how Satan operates. We know what he does. And what he tries to do is get us to think God is not fair. God, God's not fair. He's, he's keeping good things from you. I mean, let's, since we talked about the lust of the flesh in terms of sexual immorality for a moment, what does the world tell you about God and sex? He's a prude, right? God says, oh, don't do that. That's bad stuff. Is that what God says? Friends, God gave us the gift of sexual intimacy. He invented it. And what he says in the Song of Psalms is, eat, friends, Drink, imbibe deeply, O lovers. God says, have all you want. Go for it. But within the context of the relationship of which I designed it. In Song of Solomon 5.1, he says, you can have all that you want within the context of a marriage relationship. It's not that God is being mean to us. It's not that God is withholding good from us. What God is doing is he's protecting us from consequences. Because if we take his gift to us and we corrupt it and we run around and we're promiscuous like so many in the world are doing, what happens? There's sexually transmitted diseases. There's unplanned pregnancies. There's people who feel used and, and abused as they're, they're thrown aside. There's broken hearts. There's on and on the list goes of the damage that is done. But Satan never leads with the consequence. He never tells us the, the things that will happen when we disobey God. As you look at James 1, 16 through 17, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. You see, God is not trying to keep good things from us. 
He wants us to have the very best, which is why he sometimes says, don't have these things. Don't do these things outside of the design in which I gave it to you. Satan's the father of lies, and, and we have a loving father in heaven who wants to give us good gifts. And so this is the, the thing. What we have to do when a temptation comes is we have to look to the word of God, and we have to say, what did God actually say and why? Satan says, oh, well, here's a good thing for you. And what God says is, here's a better thing for you, and here are the reasons why. This is why I don't want you to fall into sin and, and all that comes with it. The supposed bargains that Satan offers will cost us immensely, while the gifts that God has given to us are given freely. It's been said before that sin will take you farther than you ever wanted to go, it'll keep you longer than you planned to stay, and it'll cost you far more than you ever wanted to pay. But Satan doesn't tell us all that up front. Now, if we choose to reject what God has for us instead and go after what Satan and the world offers us, look at what James 1.15 tells us will happen. It says, then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. George Orwell was out on his back patio one day enjoying a breakfast with uh, toast and some jam and things. And as he was out there eating his breakfast, he, he, he tells of how a wasp came and landed on the edge of his plate. It was attracted by the jelly that was there. And he said for a moment he kind of stepped back from the wasp with the, you know, as he's sitting there, whoa, look out. And then he watched this wasp. It became so enamored with the jelly, it began you know, sucking it up. And he said it was so, so fixated on satisfying its lust for the jelly that it didn't even notice when Orwell picked up his knife. And he, he went, you know how the wasp has that separation? And he said he cut the back end of the wasp off. And he said the wasp didn't even try to flee because, again, it was so enamored with satisfying its lust. And he said he watched in fascination as its body was separated and the, the jam that it was sucking up in the front began seeping out the back of the wasp. I'm, I'm, I'm glad y'all are reacting that way. Because I want you to have that vivid picture in your mind next time you're fixated on something. What has James told us? When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. This Greek word for conceived is a combined word, sin lambano, not S-I-N, but S-Y-N. It literally means to take together. And, and James uses the picture of childbirth to describe what happens when we give in to lust. You see, Instead of the birth of a new life, it ultimately leads to death. We're told when sin is accomplished, the word literally means full grown. And it's in the aorist tense, so it says it is brought to full completion. And what he says is lust, when we give in to it, will always lead to death. We think it's going to lead to satisfaction and good things, and maybe for a period of time you have that, but he says it ultimately always leads to death. And death is defined simply as separation. Death in the human form happens when our eternal soul is separated from our physical form. The eternal soul lives forever, but the, the physical body returns to the dust of the earth. So death is defined as separation of the soul from the body. 
And, and there is a second death the Bible describes in the book of Revelation, and it's called the lake of fire, what we call hell. And it says when the first death has been accomplished for the non-believer who does not go from the, the earth to heaven to be with the Lord, it says we, those who are non-believers will ultimately all be cast or separated from God for all eternity in this lake of fire. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And one way to avoid temptation is to take our eyes off the immediate pleasure that the bait seems to offer and to think through to the the ultimate consequence that comes with it. Look to the consequence and suddenly you'll say that trap isn't worth uh, going for. If, if an animal knew if I go, go here, I'm going to be shot and killed, or a fish knew if I eat this, I'm going to be ripped out of my habitat and be hung on somebody's wall or, or found on a dinner plate, uh, they wouldn't do it. And as you think about the things you're being tempted to indulge in, I invite you to just take out a piece of paper and draw a line straight down the middle and put what am I going to gain and what am I going to lose. And I can guarantee you that as you begin to list what you're going to gain and you put up against it all the consequences that come, you will find every single time the consequences will tell you the short-term pleasure is not worth the long-term consequence. And that's what James is telling us we need to do here. As James talks about this process of sin, he uses this conception to birth process. It takes many months. Rarely does sin just happen. Everybody says, oh, I don't know what happened. I found myself there. I fell into sin. And we're like that little boy who are wearing our swimsuit uh, and planning. Or we're the little girl who pushes the chair and climbs up and opens the jar and looks in and smells and lingers. And, oh, mom, my, my tooth just got caught on the cookie. It never just happens. We can all look at the process that leads us there. Um, there in, in Africa, they have a proverb. And they say when two dogs get into a fight, the one that's been eating well wins. So when two dogs get in a fight, the one that's been eating well wins. And you can picture the two sides of you, your sin side and your your carnal side and your spiritual side. And as believers, think in terms of which side you're feeding more. And for many of us, what we're doing is we're feeding the sin side of our life, right? And you're saying, well, Roger, I'm here in church today, and I'm, I'm hearing a sermon, and I'm, I, I read my Bible occasionally, and uh, wonderful. But what about all through the week? Our, our minds are being bombarded with the TV, the internet, our, our devices in our hand, on and on. Just the world is inundating us. And when you compare how much we're eating of the junk of the world versus the word of God, which side is eating well? And so you can picture your carnal side as this 150-pound Rottweiler that's all bulked up, and your spiritual side is this little teacup chihuahua that's, you know, (laughs) shivering over here. And if these two dogs get in a fight, the only way that the, the, the chihuahua wins is if the Rottweiler chokes on it while it's trying to swallow it, right? And... And again, we wonder, why, why did I fall into temptation? And it didn't happen at the moment of the fight, friends. It happened last week and last month and a year ago. Have you been feeding your spiritual side? Have you been storing up the word of God? Uh, which side is eating well? And then you get into a fight and you wonder why you fall. We need to be feeding our spiritual side. So when the fight begins... 
It's, it's, it's ahead already. We need to turn the tide. Psalm 119.9-11 tells us this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. How much of God's word is up here, friends? Can, can you, in a moment, pull it out, or do you say, uh, hold on, I've, I've got to Google that verse. I've got to think, oh, back in BSF one day we talked about this, or I heard a sermon two years ago on this. What was that verse? Can you bring to memory the Word of God? You know, one of the things I do is I memorize God's Word. Nowhere near as much as some of you. I'm, there, there are men and women among us who memorize books upon books of the Bible. And contrary to popular belief, I do not have all 66 books of the Bible memorized, even as a pastor. I'd love to, but I'm not there yet. And so you have to ask yourself, have you memorized? But what you need to do is say, if there's an area where I'm, I'm tempted and I struggle in this particular area of sin a lot of times, go and find verses that you need to combat that. For instance, the lust side again. In, in Job 31.1, it says, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to gaze upon a virgin. Now, the way the message, a, a modern paraphrase puts it is, I've made a solemn pact with myself never to undress a girl with my eyes. And so if you're somebody who says in that, that moment where I, I'm facing a temptation or a sin, the psalm just told us to have God's word hidden in our heart and in our mind. And if you find yourself in a moment facing something like that, you just remind yourself, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at this man or this woman. And you, you say to God, God, I need your help to apply. I need to follow through with what I've said, and we need to turn, and we need to flee from it. And you get out of there. Those are the practical ways that we can, we can battle temptation. But now, what do you do this morning if you're saying, Roger, I'm, I'm behind the game on this. I've been feeding the, the wrong side of my life, and I've fallen into sin, and, and, I, and I'm a mess right now, and I hear what you're saying, and I want to begin doing that. But right now, frankly, I can't even believe I'm sitting here in church because if the people around me really knew who I was and what I've done, they wouldn't want to be around me. What do I do? Well, the first thing you do is you don't listen to the father of lies, Satan. Satan wants you to believe that God is done with you. God doesn't want you here. But that's not what God says about you. As a sinner, Romans 5, 8 said, God demonstrated his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if Satan is reminding you of your past, friends, just remind him of his future. Just, just tell him, uh, I know what Jesus did on the cross, and I know you were defeated. And while you may be running around right now, your ultimate destiny is one of, of God's victory over you. And then you remind him of what God said about you. Yes, you and I are sinners, but he died to save us. And he says, if we will turn from our sin and turn to him, he will make us a son or a daughter of his. He will adopt us into the family. And if you're one who has already come to faith in Christ and you say, but Roger, I, I haven't been living as I should, again, God has, has something in his word for you. 1 John 1, 9 says, if, if we confess our sins, he says, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
He says, you turn to me. You tell me, God, I blew it. I sinned. I made a mistake. And God isn't going to reject you and push you away. He says he will forgive you. And he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So as we close today, I want you just to take a few moments to talk to the Lord. I want you to look at your life this morning. If you walked in here with some active sin in your life, talk to God and say, God, I need your help. And when you walk out of here and you go home today, go and delete those pages you've marked on your web browser. So those places that are causing you to stumble and sin. If you've got stuff hidden in your car or office or home, put it in the trash and get rid of it. If you've got a relationship in your life that isn't right, you need to bring it to a close. You need to end it. You don't keep playing with it. You don't keep lingering around it and wondering why one day you're going to get hit with the hook. So if there's something in your life this morning that you need to turn from, then confess that to God. And if you need to turn for the first time to Jesus and you need to ask him to be the Lord of your life, Romans 10.9 says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So take a moment this morning and confess with your mouth either your sin or your need for Jesus as a Savior. And then I'll close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of new and eternal life. We thank you, Lord, that you came and you went to the cross willingly to take our place. To die is the payment for the penalty of sin, death, so that we would not have to live separate from you. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who's not yet received your son, that today would be the day where they recognize their need for you. That they would stop trying to fight on their own and instead they would turn to you, the one who has already won the victory, the one who conquered sin and death and our foe Satan. Lord, would they accept you as their savior? Would they receive the gift of new and eternal life? And Father, for those of us who have come to faith in Christ, would we live our lives in a way that honors you, not because we think it gets us to heaven, not because we have to, but out of love, recognizing how much you loved us. Would we love you, Jesus, more than our sin? Father, as we talk about this gift of new and eternal life, we thank you that you gave that to those believers who last, last Sunday lost their lives. They lost their earthly life, Father, but they began their eternal life as they went home to be with you. And Father, even as we speak, even as we bow our heads in prayer right now, there's a service going on out there at First Baptist Church of Sutherland Springs. Pastor Mark and his wife Sherry are there preaching your word, talking to a community that's grieving. And we pray that you, Lord, would bring your peace that passes all understanding, not only to him as he's lost his own daughter and much of his congregation. I pray, Lord, that you would allow the words that are spoken, not only by Mark, but by um, the other pastors in the community, for Bobby at Hope Church, for Father Campos at the Catholic Church, for... Bill and Martha, who are up the road at River Oaks Church, 
for Chris at Cowboy Fellowship. Lord, as your word is going out all throughout that community, would, would the words of eternal life touch not just the residents of that community, but these, these reporters from all over the world? Lord, your, your word, your truth is powerful. And we pray it would penetrate the darkness. We pray, Lord, for those who are in the hospitals here in San Antonio, still recovering from their wounds. Lord, you are Jehovah Rapha, the God of healing. And we ask in your mercy and grace, you would touch and heal bodies. Lord, we know there's a long road of recovery and rehabilitation for some. And we pray your grace would be sufficient to meet those needs in the days ahead. Father, we thank you for meeting our need of a Savior. We thank you for the gift of new and eternal life. Would we walk in the light? Would we be messengers of grace as we leave here today? Pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.